Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. Welcome to season three. We have a very special episode to kick off our third season as your go-to source for content helping leaders go beyond high performance. We're going to start with giving you a sneak peek into a very special interview between Jason Jaggard and the one and only Ed Catmull. Ed is the co-founder of Pixar and also was the president of both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios and the New York Times bestselling author of Creativity Inc. The full interview will drop in a couple of weeks, but we wanted to give you a taste of what to expect. Next, we have a new book that is already an Amazon number one bestseller, Beyond High Performance, What Great Coaches Know About How the Best Get Better. This book was written by Jason Jaggard, the coaches of Novus Global, and the faculty of the Meta Performance Institute. In this episode, we will share an exclusive preview of the audiobook, covering the entire preface, introduction, and chapter one of the book. Have you heard the exciting news? Pre-orders are live on our book, Beyond High Performance, What Great Coaches Know About How the Best Get Better. This number one Amazon bestseller is 250 pages of expertise from Novus Global coaches and their clients who share how they apply their leadership tools in work and life. To make a sweet deal even sweeter, pre-ordering this book unlocks bonuses, including access to the Beyond High Performance Network, enrollment in a leadership masterclass, early access to the book itself, and a free copy of our companion workbook. To learn more and pre-order now, visit novus.global forward slash book. First, let's hear from Ed Catmull, who shares a behind-the-scenes story about Steve Jobs' early investment into Pixar. So Steve bought us for... He put $5 million in the company originally, but he bought the company for $5 million. Uh-huh. So he was out $10 million, and I never knew what the real numbers were. Um, I heard other people saying, there's even some books about him that he was, at that time, he was worth $100 million. Uh-huh. I would have thought at the time that he was worth two hundred. Yeah, more. Yeah. But I'm guessing. Yeah. Right? By the time he started hemorrhaging money, he put in $54 million. Into Pixar. Into Pixar. Wow. When you don't really have a, you're not telling stories, you're not making movies. This is all just investing in the tech and the anticipation of Moore's Law catching up to be able to tell a story. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So yeah. it was frustrating. Yeah. It was hard yeah. for him. And I was very aware that there was no VC ever that would have uh, done what he did. Invested in that. Why do you think he did that? The truth was, most of the time, I kind of wondered why he stuck with it as long as he did. Yeah. I did learn something, and I think it was related to the Apple thing, because he basically was instrumental in building it, and then he felt like he'd been betrayed. And when we started the Pixar, when he, the day that we signed the documents, he put his arms around Alvi and me, and he said, whatever happens, we have to be loyal to each other. So that was his statement. Yeah. Now he was. Hmm. Now, that still made it very hard for him. Yes. And whether it was 100 or 200, which I don't know, if I, it was still. 54 is still a big percentage of 200. Was, like that was a crazy amount of his to be. To, he had to his be, capital. Of it, to bet. Yeah. And he looked at selling us three times. Hmm. And each time there was the same 
process. That is, somebody was interested. Steve would then ask for a price that was uh, outrageous. <laughs> they would come in with something which was really too low. And then logically, you would say, oh, they're going to meet in the middle. But Steve wouldn't budge off his number. So it was like, okay, the first time this happened, I thought, well, that's a little strange. So we're back doing things again. And then we go through the process again with another company. And one of the things along the way was actually Microsoft, who wanted to buy us because they had all this graphics talent. Yeah. And so they came up with a number, and Steve came up with a number. They weren't that far apart that it was rational to think they would end up in the middle. Steve wouldn't budge. <laughs> and then at that point, I realized, oh, he's actually not trying to sell us. He's trying to value us. Hmm. He's trying to validate his investment. Hmm. If they're willing to pay this amount of money for us, I will keep going. Hmm. Smart. The other thing that was happening is, is we're going through this. I have to say that, that Steve's sense of humor was changing and improving. And now in retrospect, I realized, okay, it really was a fairly big effect to have gone through that failure. And everybody on the outside would say it's a failure and that, that he didn't do things the way that he should. Yeah. And that's one of the, the reasons that the story gets skewed about Steve is that that behavior that he had is dramatic. Hmm. And so people like the, the dramatic stories. All right. So that's more exciting to write about in our articles and, and tell stories about because it's got that kind of drama to it. Right. But it actually missed the real story, which is the hero's journey. The Steve's behavior early on and in the extremity of it didn't work. And Steve is extraordinarily smart. And part of being smart was knowing and, and deeply getting that there's no upside in being wrong. <laughs> the other thing that he had, which is hard for people to understand, is that you commit with passion when you need to commit, like you're going to do this. And then when it's wrong, then you abandon, you move to something else. But you need that passion as the driving force, but you don't want that passion to drive you the wrong direction. How do you do that? Yeah. And in, in Steve's case, what he would do is he wanted to have people around him who would push back. So as a, an example with, we have the board of directors of, of Pixar, because we were a public company for a while. Hmm. And we had these meetings of the board of directors, but there were two people who didn't push back. We can't wait for you to hear more of this interview in our next episode. Now, enjoy an excerpt from Beyond High Performance, what great coaches know about how the best get better. And make sure to pre-order the book today at novus.global forward slash book. Beyond High Performance, what great coaches know about how the best get better. Written by Jason Jaggard, the coaches of Novus Global, and the faculty of the Meta Performance Institute. Narrated by Jason Jaggard. To the clients of Novus Global and the graduates of the Meta Performance Institute, we love being fierce advocates for you. In your success, we find our own. Never stop going beyond high performance. Preface. Seven words that change everything. 
1982, Tony Cavallo was sweating in the Georgia heat working underneath a vintage Chevrolet Impala. Suddenly, the car slipped off its jacks onto Tony's chest. Instead of crushing him, Tony felt the 3,000 pounds of weight begin to slowly rise off his body. He strained to see who was lifting the car and was shocked to discover not the legs of his co-workers, but the familiar stockings of his mother. His aging mom had lifted the car just enough for two neighbors to replace the jacks and pull Tony out from underneath. Once Tony was out of danger, he and his neighbors looked at his mom in disbelief. No one was more surprised than her. She whispered to herself, I didn't know I could do that. The phenomenon of bursts of enhanced ability has a name in medical circles, hysterical strength. Apparently, stored up in each person under the right conditions are abilities people don't realize they have. There have been documented cases of extraordinary strength peppered throughout history. A family saved from a burning building, babies rescued from ice-filled rivers, and yes, even cars lifted off the chests of men by their mothers. Over and over, with singed hair or soaking clothes or trembling knees, people have whispered those seven words, I didn't know I could do that. While these stories are usually about physical feats of strength, there are other examples of uncommon abilities that don't involve, you know, lifting things. In the worlds of business, activism, sports, entertainment, and even relationships, there are moments of what could be called hysterical strength. As the U.S. Olympic hockey team beat the Soviets in the 1980 Winter Games, sportscaster Al Michaels screamed, Do you believe in miracles? Read, I didn't know they could do that. Or after Walt Disney opened his first theme park bearing his name, he said, It's kind of fun to do the impossible. Or in 1994, after leading South Africa to end apartheid, Nelson Mandela said, It always seems impossible until it's done. To paraphrase Walton Nelson, we didn't know we could do that until we did. On a smaller scale, that's the experience many of us have when we lead our teams in a new way or when we create something we've never created before. It's how we feel when we accomplish something extraordinary together with the people we love. It can be a bizarre and disorienting experience finding ourselves doing something we didn't know we could do. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but most of the time the experience is wonderful, intoxicating, and I believe this is one of the greatest thrills of being alive. When we go beyond what we think we're capable of, and while we're doing that thing, we smile and think, I didn't know I could do that. I want you to have that experience as often as possible. This book is about you doing what you don't realize you can do. And for those of us who like to dream a little bigger, this book is about what our companies and communities can do that they don't realize they can do. May we all experience hysterical strength in the things that matter most. Let's begin. Introduction, The Inner World of High Performers. I love high performers. And if you're reading this, you're probably one of them. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. The dirty little secret of high performers is that they simultaneously, A, highly believe in themselves, B, know they're capable of more, and C, are a little nervous of what more might entail. High performers are a wonderful cocktail of seemingly conflicting beliefs. According to our research with our clients all over the world, 89% of those surveyed reported sometimes feeling like imposters. Fake it even after you make it. And 71% reported occasionally feeling like anyone could do their job. In other words, while others might be impressed with them, they are not that impressed with themselves. At the same time, high performers take a degree of pride in being very good at their work. They get frustrated when others don't show up like they do. And yet they tend to fluctuate between enjoying being really good at what they do and worrying they aren't good enough. How can they truly know if they're coasting or doing their best? The question is harder to answer than it may seem. The Stoic philosopher Seneca once said, No one can ever know what you are capable of, not even you. And this is the problem of potential. 
How do we really know what it is we're capable of? High performers wrestle with questions like these. What is beneath me and not worth my time? What is out of my reach and not worth the risk? You may also read this and think, I know I could do more and that I'm capable of more, but what? And at what cost? If you ever find yourself asking these questions, then this book is for you. Behind the Scenes with the Best Over the last 20 years, I've had an up-close and personal look at high performers. As a coach and founder of Novus Global, our international executive coaching firm, and co-founder of the Meta Performance Institute, a non-traditional incubator for coaches, leaders, and managers, our teams have worked with executives of Fortune 100 companies, elected officials, professional athletes, world-renowned artists and movie stars, and multimillionaires. At the firm, our clients go beyond their own levels of high performance. And at the Institute, we have the privilege of helping some of the best leaders in the world learn how to coach like we do. We have been fortunate enough to learn what helps the best get better from actually being in the trenches with them, behind the scenes, coaching them to greater performance for both them and their teams. And while I've been journeying with high performers for a long time, my admiration for them started back when I was a kid, and I bet yours did too. One thing you and I probably have in common is that we both had people we looked up to when we were younger. For me, I looked up to musicians, usually dead ones. The first album I ever bought was Benny Goodman Live at Carnegie Hall, recorded in 1938. I played the trumpet at the time, my poor parents, and I remember being blown away, pun intended, by Benny's big band just annihilating Sing 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 with a Swing. I listened to that song over and over and over again because, as a trumpet player, Benny's band was the best. Or maybe for you it was athletes. A lot of us reading this probably remember watching the Olympics on a couch somewhere, transfixed by the drama of the best athletes sacrificing years of their lives for one shot to do something extraordinary. And being raised in the 90s meant sports was spelled with two words, Michael Jordan. Even kids who were horrible at basketball, that would be me, after all I was a, quote, musician, would stick out our tongues and lunge from the free throw line with our arms outstretched, flying through the air, if only in our imaginations. Michael Jordan was the GOAT. And I, like other kids around the world, was drawn to that. Or take film and television. I remember Marla Brassfield taking a bunch of us kids to see The Little Mermaid in 1988. I'll never forget walking out of that grimy theater with my tennis shoes sticking to the dried soda floor, understanding that I had just seen a work of art. I told myself, I want to be around people who tell stories like that someday. Looking back, I can now see how this admiration for the best eventually led to me founding the firm and then years later co-founding the Institute with one of our top coaches and also my biological sister, Amanda. My early love of music and musicians found its fulfillment in a coaching firm where we've had coaches who've sang with Prince and clients who have won Grammys. An admiration for athletes turned into a firm where we have clients who are some of the highest paid athletes in the history of the world and where some of our graduates of the Institute are former professional athletes themselves. And years after The Little Mermaid, our coaches not only have been on the Disney studio lot working with their leaders, but we've had the privilege of serving A-list celebrities and some of the most creative filmmakers in Hollywood. Among the coaches in our firm and the faculty of the Institute, there are over 100 years of combined coaching and leadership wisdom working with some of the highest performers in the world. And the book you're holding contains some of our best understandings from working with these extraordinary people and helping them step into their next level of greatness. Is Greatness for Everyone? Some reading this might be thinking, hooray for you and your clients, but that's not for everyone. Only a few people are destined to be great. Let me humbly suggest all people are designed for greatness. You, me, that jerk at work you don't like, everyone. Pablo Picasso once said, every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. 
Is it possible that the same could be true about greatness? We're all born designed to admire those who can lift what we can't, like when our dads picked us up and we thought he was the strongest man on earth, or admire people who are smarter than us, like when our moms knew why the sky was blue. As we grew older, we all looked to rock stars, Pulitzer Prize winners, role models we had at school, business moguls, activists, artists, elected officials, or titans of history. There's something about greatness that has a gravitational pull. There is beauty in simply seeing someone do something with excellence. But I want to strongly suggest that the real beauty isn't simply in beholding it, but in becoming it. There is power not only in perceiving greatness, but in pursuing it. Is it possible that our desire to perceive greatness is the evidence that we were meant to pursue it? Believe it or not, I was taught this since I was a child at, brace yourself, church of all places. I actually grew up in a fantastic, albeit imperfect, spiritual community where my mentors and youth leaders constantly encouraged me to believe that the purpose of life was to pursue greatness. I had some of the best youth leaders a young person could ask for. One of them, Darren Wade, wrote me a note when I was younger that I have kept all these years. He told me, never be satisfied. He pounded that message into me in every speech he gave. It was an encouragement that said, there's always more. And while there is nothing wrong with being content, do not let contentment drift into complacency and rob you of the life you are meant to live. And this is the tension we high performers find ourselves in, the never-ending tug of war between contentment and complacency. High performers have a lot to be content about, and yet they also have this itch that there's more. This naturally causes a sense of internal struggle. Oftentimes, high performers will accidentally choose complacency instead of contentment as a solve against the pathological need for more. They have this love-hate relationship with the idea of more. Some have burned out on pursuing more at any cost. Others have gotten everything they ever wanted, and yet they still feel unfulfilled. Still others choose to get off the work treadmill completely. They radically shift their priorities and simplify their lives by going to some other country as a spiritual tourist for a year and come back zenned out wearing loose-fitting clothes and detached from the world they used to be obsessed with. It seems as though the choice is to either sacrifice yourself on the altar of more or to run away from the more monster altogether. I want to suggest a third way. You don't have to want less and you don't have to destroy yourself in the pursuit of more. And that's the question I really want you to sit with. What if it were possible for you to accomplish more without it ruining your life? Or more importantly, what if it were possible for you to accomplish more in a way that enhances your life? Most of us believe that in order to grow or take our lives to the next level, we have to destroy everything in the process. But for us at the firm and the Institute, we believe there's a way to pursue more from a healthy and sober place and in a way that is a gift to you, the people you work with, and those you love. This book will show you how. This book is not about only you. The pages ahead of you reflect two obsessions me and my colleagues at the firm and the Institute have. An obsession with unleashing the potential in others and an obsession with community. This book is the intersection of those two things, which might sound strange coming from a coach. You may not have noticed, but most coaches you probably know are solopreneurs. Many find their way into the coaching world because they don't want to work on teams anymore. If you look around at the great resignation of 2021, more than ever people were opting out and going out on their own. In many ways, this is exciting, but it can also be problematic. Here you have a bunch of people leaving teams, many of whom didn't like being on teams, who are now coaching people who are on teams. Hiring a coach who doesn't like teams is like hiring a dentist who doesn't like teeth. Our companies are different. When we started the firm, we were committed to a team approach to coaching. We truly believe we are better together. 
We created the firm because we want to create a community of coaches who all have this fierce conviction that the best way to explore what you're capable of is in the context of community. And when we started the Institute, it's because we wanted to give others the tools to fall in love with the sacred arts of coaching and leading and managing that we love so much. We believed that if we put out the message that we're looking for and aspiring towards greatness, the right people would come. This reminds me of something said by Nick Fury, played by the imitable Samuel L. Jackson in the 2012 movie, The Avengers, which brought together Captain America, the Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, Black Widow, and Hawkeye, all stars, all deserving their own franchises, all high performers. Walking around the table filled with Marvel's biggest names, Fury makes the case for bringing them all together. Quote, There was an idea. The idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if they could become something more. Even though that's a quote from a comic book movie full of people whose primary superpower is fitting their sculpted figures into spandex outfits, it still gets me every time. And if it gets you too, even just a little bit, then I think the ideas and suggested habits in the following pages just might change your life. How to use this book. I want you to think of this book as proverbial gym equipment that you will, quote, work out with to reach incredible new levels of impact in your life. And like all workouts, it's not a one-and-done event. Our hope is that the ideas in this book will become some of your favorite weights to wrestle with and bench press into the muscle of your life. And while this was written for any person who wants to explore going beyond high performance, there's a few other specific groups of people we want to highlight who might be reading. If you're an aspiring coach or someone who uses coaching principles in their life and leadership, this book is an essential piece of gym equipment for the people you serve. For those of you who have benefited from our coaching over the years and wish your teams could have a basic understanding of what it is you are wanting them to achieve, this book is for you to pass along to them. If you are one of our graduates from the Institute, we wrote this as a resource for you as well. But mostly we wrote this for anyone who senses they have an extra gear inside of them that they're wanting to shift into in order to make a greater contribution to their world. These values and methods have helped the companies we've worked with make billions of dollars and give out millions of dollars of bonuses and philanthropy. It's helped employees get more done in less time, increase employee satisfaction, reduce costs, funded vacations and college budgets, and so much more. Since I know not every one of you has a coach or will go through our institute, this book can be like a coach on your shoulder and will be the next best thing for you, your team, and your organization. Next, when you're reading along, you don't have to agree with what you read. In fact, disagreement is important. Do your own thinking. But if you disagree, it will be important that you notice and then get curious about why. Why you resonate with some things and not with others. There's probably going to be some things in here that might even offend you. I promise it's not on purpose. But I also promise if you get offended, there is value in exploring the offense. All offense is designed to protect something. I recommend you get curious about where the offense is coming from and ask yourself, does the belief your offense is protecting serve you or hurt you? In this way, we believe coaching is a form of meditation. Granted, it is a high-octane relational form of meditation, during which you are paying attention to yourself in a new way, with a new lens, with a new listening, so that you can create things that are currently invisible to you and or might seem impossible for you. I want you to read this as a form of meditation in a way that makes you pay attention to yourself. Listen to the invitation from the pages ahead to step into something new and extraordinary and pay attention to what happens or how you react, feel, or create while you do it. The book you hold isn't really the content. As we say at the firm and the institute, you are the content. Finally, seek more than insights. Most people receive accidental value from books. Most of us read a book because we're interested in the subject, and then if we're lucky, we get an aha moment or an insight. 
And then if you're really lucky, that insight translates into some kind of interesting anecdote at a cocktail party or an interesting quote to pass around the office or to mention in a meeting. And that's about it. In other words, the book didn't really change your life. It just changed what you talked about for a couple of weeks. Lori Gottlieb, psychologist and author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed, writes, Insight is the booby prize of therapy. That's one of my favorite maxims of the trade. What she means is you can have insights galore, but if you don't apply anything when you're out in the world, the insight in therapy is nearly worthless. Don't let the insights get in the way of making progress. While we hope that every chapter is packed with paradigm-shifting, consciousness-expanding insights, we also hope those insights are not the end of your journey. They're just the beginning. It works if you work it. The ideas in this book have changed my life and have changed the lives of people all over the world who long to go beyond high performance. I'll never forget being asked to fly to New York to speak at one of our clients' corporate events. They'd had their best year ever, an increase in the sale pipeline of several hundred million dollars, and had attributed a large part of their success to the work that our coaches had done with their executive leadership and management teams. I was at the after party of the event in a midtown skyscraper with huge windows of the greatest city on earth, with a live band and lots of champagne for the celebration. Jason, I heard someone yell over the music. I turned to see a huge burly leader in New York business walk up to me, wrap his arms around me, and lift me off the ground. These kinds of gruff types aren't prone to signs of affection, and I was caught off guard. I want to thank your team for what they've done for me, he said. Not only have I had my best year ever in business, but I've been using the tools I learned through coaching with my 16-year-old daughter, and it's really helped our relationship. Then he teared up. These guys never tear up. And he said, In the past, her mom was the one she really connected to, but going through adolescence has put a strain on their relationship, and I've been able to step up and connect with her. He paused and he said, I didn't know I could do that. And he reached his huge hand out to shake mine and said, Thank you. This is what I want for you. If a guy at the top of his game can go even further professionally, if a rough and tough businessman can reinvent his relationship with his teenage daughter, then imagine what you can do. If I've done my job right, by the time you're finished reading this book, you too will feel the same exuberance and gratitude and will have transcended the ordinary to the incredible, and you will have done it with others. In part one of this book, I will teach you the three ways most people perceive work and the fourth way that will transform how you'll see work for the rest of your life. That's chapter one. We'll explore together the most uncommon ways high performers hold themselves back and what to do about it. That's chapter two. We'll talk about one of the most important tools for high performers that they almost always underutilize in chapter three. Some of the chapters you can apply immediately, like chapter four on culture, but the more powerful chapters will be the ones that gradually reshape how you see yourself, how you see others, and how you see the world around you. And perhaps more importantly, in part two, you will learn the hallmark principles of the go-live mindset we practice with our clients at the firm and with our coaches in training at the Institute. Go-live is an acronym inviting you to explore how to increase your obsession for growth without burning out, how to leverage ownership like a searchlight looking for strength and agency you didn't know you had, how to use love as your secret weapon when it comes to accomplishing intimidating goals, how the word integrity isn't what you think it is, and how you can use it as one of the fastest ways to get more done in less time, how to use vision to reshape your present and even your past to create a better future, and how to cultivate more energy in your life that spreads to others in powerful ways. Our hope for you is that you will discover what eludes even those at the rarefied top, all so that you can go beyond high performance. But our first stop is a journey into your mind and how to redesign it to create what you and your teams can now only dream of. 
Hi, my name is Mike Park, and I'm a proud graduate of the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. The faculty of the Meta Performance Institute not only provided the training, tools, and experience to learn how to coach people toward powerful growth and thrilling results, but also advocated for that kind of growth and results in my own life. I had the unique opportunity to have world-class executive coaches invest in my development, both professionally and personally. It's a privilege to be part of a tribe of coaches fiercely committed to exploring what we are capable of together. If you're looking to become a coach or to set up your coaching practice to reach the next level, I highly recommend the certification from the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching to fill out a free assessment of your abilities as a coach and to connect with someone to find out if the Meta Performance Institute is for you check out www.mp.institute part one the meta performing mind when I was a kid my parents forced me to write thank-you notes to relatives for gifts they gave me I hated it not because I hated writing notes although I suppose I hated that too but because the, quote, gifts I was being asked to be grateful for usually sucked. Sorry, distant relatives. I wasn't grateful for them. Writing a note wasn't going to magically make me grateful. In fact, writing a thank you note made me less grateful because now there were two things in my life I never asked for, a horrible gift and the task of writing a note. Of course, my parents may have felt good because they got one kind of result, that is, a thank you note sent to said relative to pay the thankful tax expected when gifts were given, no matter how bad the gifts were, but they didn't get the deeper kind of result that they really wanted, helping me actually learn to be grateful. In fact, forcing a little rug rat like me to write thank you for the cheap oversized sunglasses that I'd never wear not only didn't teach me to be grateful, it taught me how to fake gratitude to make others happy. This is because gratitude doesn't flow from writing a note. It flows from seeing life as a gift or developing what we might call a gratitude mindset. If you can help a child cultivate a grateful mind, then spontaneous actions of gratitude will begin to emerge that you as a parent would never anticipate. The goal isn't to change one's behavior. The goal is to change your mind. You can learn tips, habits, and tricks about something, but they usually won't produce the lasting results you want because you haven't yet changed your mind. This doesn't mean there aren't things you can do to redesign your mind. There are, and that's what part one of this book is about. Just like creating a mind of gratitude, we're inviting you into the creation of a certain kind of mind that naturally goes beyond high performance. In this section, we want to teach you a certain way of seeing the world. We want to teach you a certain way of seeing yourself. We want to introduce you to a certain kind of mind. The following principles are designed to provide scaffolding and agile structure to help retrain your mind to perceive existence differently, out of which spontaneous new behaviors will begin to emerge. This is what we do in coaching with all of our clients. We don't tell them what to do. We're building a system in which they can redesign their minds. And once they have a mind designed to go beyond high performance, they start performing in ways that surprise even themselves. Chapter 1. The Prisoner, the Mercenary, and the Missionary It's just a job. Grass grows, birds fly, waves pound the sand. I beat people up. Muhammad Ali New Year's Eve, $100 million, private islands, tinfoil handcuffs, it's just business, the invisible athlete, getting reps, and what comes after Malcolm Gladwell. What is work for? A tale of two careers. New Year's Eve, 2015, Hollywood, California. I'm at a swanky bar. My friends are in Gatsby suits and go-go dresses, and the party is swinging. Over the course of the night, I end up standing next to a decently accomplished L.A. artist. We start talking about work. What's your goal with work? I asked him. Easy, he shouted over the crowd counting down to 2016. I want to work hard, cash out, and live on a beach somewhere for the rest of my life. 
Fast forward a year later, Santa Monica, California. I'm on a restaurant balcony overlooking the Pacific Ocean as the sun sets. I'm having a conversation with a woman who had started several successful accessory companies, selling her first company for over $100 million. She never has to work again. She has just accomplished what our earlier LA artist friend could only dream of. So I ask her, what was that like, exiting your first company and being free from work forever? I told myself I would take two years off before jumping into my next venture, she replies. I smile and ask, how many years did you end up taking off? She laughs, about two months. She and I look knowingly at each other and she adds, but they were a good two months. Why did she jump back into work so quickly? Why didn't she buy an island and live the rest of her life in luxury and ease? If you asked her, she'd tell you, it's not because she's a workaholic. Certainly it's not because she needs the money. It's that she understands human beings are, in part, designed for work. I can't tell you how many people are like the LA artist who thinks the goal of life is to not work. Or maybe, put another way, most people think the purpose of work is to eventually stop working. We work now so that someday we won't have to. We work now so that we can retire later. Maybe you're reading this and you think it is too. But we want to suggest that work is for something else. Life After Malcolm Gladwell Millions of people have been introduced to Dr. Anders Ericsson's concept of 10,000 hours, made famous by Malcolm Gladwell in his best-selling book, Outliers, The Story of Success. Gladwell argues that you, anyone, could become a master in any given field if you were able to dedicate 10,000 hours of practice towards it. He cites a wide variety of examples, from Beatles to Bill Gates, all of whom practiced for 10,000 hours before making it. Then, Michael Miller, in an article for Six Seconds, explains the caveat to the 10,000-hour rule mainly arguing that all practice isn't equal by explaining Dr. Erickson's concept of deliberate practice. Miller writes, The best way to get better at something is through something known as deliberate practice, which means practicing in order to get better, doing activities recommended by experts to develop specific abilities, identifying weaknesses, and working to correct them, and intentionally pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Michael Sullivan quotes the researcher Erickson who said, Not every type of practice leads to improved ability. You don't get benefits from mechanical repetition, but by adjusting your execution over and over to get closer to your goal. What Gladwell, Erickson, and Miller all agree on is that the point of the 10,000-hour rule is to get good at something. Really good. And that's how most high performers relate to work. Get good at something, get well paid at something. Bullseye. Nailed it. And while we agree that getting really good at something is a worthy use of 10,000 hours, we also think they're missing a broader point for high performers, which is this. What happens after 10,000 hours? The 10,000-hour rule is fantastic if the goal of work is to get really good at something. But what happens after you're already good? The reality is, most of us will dedicate 10,000 hours to something. That's the first 10 years of your career. Or if you start developing your skills in your teens, like many do, then you've got your 10,000 hours down in your 20s. Most of us reading this already have our 10,000 hours, or are close to it. Some of us have deliberately practiced, some of us haven't. But if you are reading this, you've probably already spent 10,000 hours doing something. Now what? That's the deeper question the Beatles had to answer. That's the deeper question Bill Gates and every professional athlete has to answer. It's the question every high performer has to answer. It's probably the question you have to answer. What do you do after you're already great at something? After you write a hard day's night? After you invent Microsoft Office? What do you do after your 10,000 hours? To answer that, we have to look at what comes after the 10,000 hour rule. How many hours will you work? Imagine you could take all the activities of your life and clump them together into categories of time. For example, think about how many hours you'll spend with your loved ones. 
Think about how much time you'll spend sleeping. Think about how much time you'll spend on vacation or how much time you'll spend raising kids or staring at a screen or going to the bathroom. Now I want you to think about how much time you'll spend at work. I'm going to tell you something that might be a little depressing. According to the best estimates, you will spend more time at work than nearly any other activity in your life. You will spend some time asleep, in school, socializing, building families, working out at the gym, or arguing with a lover. But by and large, the majority of your waking hours will be spent working. In fact, according to the research of Andrew Neighbor, an industrial and organizational psychologist and an associate behavioral scientist at Rand Corporation, we humans now spend on average about a third of life at a job. That averages out to be about 100,000 hours doing something you call work. 100,000 hours. This means how you look at work is one of the most important things that will ever shape your life. Most people talk about how they relate to money or how they relate to relationships, but very few people talk about how they relate to work. Yet how you relate to work is one of the most important relationships you will ever have. In our world at the firm and the institute, we love the 10,000 hour rule, but we're more interested in the 100,000 hour rule. Notice we haven't told you what it is yet. Don't worry, keep reading. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be spending 100,000 hours of your life at work, which begs the question, what's the best way to spend 100,000 hours? I want you to stop for a moment and think about this. How do you want to use them? This is where your relationship to work comes in. Most people, when they think of relationships in work, think about their relationships at work. A lot of people complain about their relationships at work. Bosses who don't get it, colleagues who don't get it, employees who don't get it, clients who don't get it. In many ways, work is relationships. Studies have shown that the single greatest contributing factor to people's satisfaction at work are the relationships. One study revealed that 49% of people leave their jobs not because of the job itself, but because of the relational environment at work. And as important as relationships at work are, there's a relationship that's even more important. You see, to begin exploring going beyond high performance, you need to evaluate not your relationships at work, but your relationships to work. Your relationships at work are about who am I working with, and we'll touch on this in chapter three. But your relationships with work asks an even bigger question. What is work for? The reality is all of us have a relationship with work, but we're not always aware of it. And just like how not paying attention to our relationships at work can ruin those relationships, the same thing can happen to our relationships to work if we're not careful. We've noticed there are three primary ways people tend to relate to work. They are the prisoner, the mercenary, and the missionary. As you read the descriptions below, think about which ones resonate with you most. We've found that most high performers drift in and out of these three from time to time, but they tend to have a favorite, a home base, they keep coming back to. First off, we'll start with the prisoner. The prisoner. The prisoner is the person who does the work they don't want to do because they have to. Simply put, it feels like they don't have a choice. This isn't necessarily because they don't have money, although sometimes this is the case. But I can't tell you how many millionaires, when asked, do you love your work, will say an emphatic no. It's soul-crushing. They do it because they have to. They have to keep up with their peers. They have bills to pay, families to provide for. They don't know what they'd do if they weren't doing their current job. They often feel trapped. We even have a prisoner metaphor for this, golden handcuffs. But the golden handcuffs don't even have to be all that golden. So long as we feel stuck, the handcuffs could be made out of tinfoil and we won't break free. Someone with the prisoner mindset doesn't wake up in the morning feeling great about their work. It's something they have to bear and get over with or even dread. They don't necessarily care about being good at their jobs insofar as it gets the job done. They don't even have to be great at their job to still make money at it. 
It can be hard to focus on self-improvement because they are too focused on keeping their head above water, which in their case is the ability to eat and live. In some, the prisoner works because they're forced to. The mercenary. The mercenary also works for the money, but unlike the prisoner, they love what they do. It's fun. And as soon as it stops being fun, they move elsewhere. They don't care about who they're doing it for. Just like high-paid prisoners, I know a lot of high-paid executives who love the money and the work more than who they're working with or for. If the sworn enemy of whoever hired them offers them a higher salary to do the same job as their current employer, they have no problem switching teams. It's not personal, it's business. This is a mercenary's mantra. Mercenaries don't necessarily have to be cutthroat either. They just don't have a lot of skin in the game. Mercenaries are like babysitters. You can hire someone who loves kids to watch your kids for you. They may love their jobs and they love the money, but when you come home at night, they're not sticking around. The kids belong to you, not them. They've got a life to live. They clock in, do a great job, often mercenaries or high performers, and clock out. Work hard, play harder is another mercenary mantra. They work hard so they can play hard. In other words, the mercenary works to live. The missionary. Missionaries aren't really motivated by money. It's all about the cause for them. These people are usually teachers or run nonprofits or some altruistic organization, but not always. Missionaries also have a way of turning anything into a cause. There are scores of Silicon Valley tech startups that truly believe their app or invention is going to change or save the world. Ultimately, they do it because they feel compelled to. Sometimes they are underpaid and underappreciated, but they are fulfilled because they get to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Unlike the mercenary, it's all personal for them. It's never just business. And they don't see what they do as work, but rather as a cause or a purpose. They have the opposite mentality of the mercenary. They often are self-sacrificial and deplete themselves at the expense of the cause. They aren't so much worried about their survival, but their impact. They occasionally put themselves last. Sometimes they don't invest in themselves or they neglect themselves because they're not concerned with personally getting better. Their only focus is others or the mission, and without it, they feel adrift, almost as if they've lost all purpose or meaning. In other words, for the missionary, work is life. Doing things you feel you're forced to do, the prisoner, doing things you feel you want to do, the mercenary, and doing things you feel like you're called to do, the missionary, are all part of work, and all of us experience all three from time to time, at work and everywhere else. Sometimes I feel trapped like a prisoner, usually during meetings with spreadsheets about budgets and details. Sometimes I love my job and the money that comes with it, when we get opportunities to work with amazing leaders and businesses booming, when our teams are swashbuckling mercenaries for hire, coaching powerfully and enjoying the spoils. And many times I'm motivated by the cause of our companies. It's not just a job for me. In many ways, and on many days, it feels like something deeper, like a calling. And as a leader, I try to stay as connected to this as possible. So these mindsets all float around inside of me on any given day. They probably float around inside of you too. And at any moment, we get to choose which one we want to be coming from. And while most people live in one of these three categories, either doing something that they hate to pay the bills, doing something they love to pay the bills, or doing something they love whether it pays the bills or not, at the firm and the institute, we'd like to suggest another way of relating to work. For in each of the previous metaphors, the end game is either money, self, or cause. But for this final way, the end game is something else entirely. And for this kind of relationship, We've chosen to represent it with a fourth metaphor, the athlete. The athlete. I want you to imagine a world-class athlete at work in your mind. What are they doing? Maybe they're scoring the winning goal in a championship game. Maybe they're holding a trophy in front of thousands. They're probably on a field or court, and there's probably a crowd. But here's the thing. Most of the actual work of an athlete, no one ever sees. 
most of an athlete's life isn't spent in front of roaring fans or scolding goals or holding trophies. Most of their work is done in private, without fans, without trophies. Their work isn't what we think it is. We have coaches in our firm who have competed at the highest levels of sport, and we have clients who are some of the best athletes in the world. They are known for what they've done on the field. Yet if you were to look at the amount of time they spend working with the cameras off compared to the amount of time they spend with the cameras on, it's not even close. Another way of putting this is that the primary work of an athlete is invisible. They get up early and hit the ice or the court or the pool or the track or the gym. They strain and sweat and strive and work. To the athlete, practice isn't something you do before you go to work. To the athlete, practice is the work. And work is practice. An athlete shows up to constantly grow. Athletes engage in exercises during which they push themselves outside their comfort zones, use the feedback of their coaches and team members to get better, and spend their time practicing to be great. Athletes know they can't do it alone. They know a team is depending on them or their greatness is dependent on their team. While many athletes get well paid, they're putting in the work mostly because they want to constantly be better than they were yesterday. The athlete's work is about constantly getting better. For athletes, work is where they practice growing. Moreover, for athletes, the work is about what it's doing to them as much as what it's doing for them. What are you practicing or life as reps? We treat our clients like they are athletes. We know they all have 100,000 hours they will be spending at work, and we want them to start thinking of using that time as practice, deliberate practice, for growth. That's the 100,000-hour rule, treating work as an opportunity to get great at growth. Everyone is practicing something at work all the time. So let me ask you, what are you practicing? For example, every time I show up to a meeting, I'm practicing how to participate in meetings. If I show up and give only half my best, I'm practicing becoming the kind of person who doesn't bring my best. I'm training myself how to be, and I'm training others how to perceive me. But every time I'm coaching a client and I bring my best, I am practicing becoming the kind of coach who brings their best. Work is the place where you can spend 100,000 hours practicing becoming a certain kind of person. The 100,000-hour rule is about being intentional about what kind of person you want to become and then leveraging your hours spent at work, no matter what the job is, to become that kind of person. We believe when everything becomes practice, everyone can maximize their opportunity to grow. That's the question the 100,000-hour rule invites you to ask. What if work was a playground, lab, or gymnasium in which to play, learn, and get your reps in becoming who you long to be? So many people today see work as this life-sucking force. If they're looking at life as an hourglass, every minute they spend at work represents time running out. It feels depleting. At the end of every day, you're tapped out and you're counting down the days until vacation or retirement. But what if we could flip that hourglass? What if after 100,000 hours, you had more skills, more talents, more joy, more success, more friends, and more time? What if work wasn't a life-draining, but a life-sustaining, life-giving force? There's something romantic about that. It's not about being forced to work. It's not about just doing it for the paycheck. It's not about work consuming our lives. It's about looking at work as a means of creative output, of adding value. Work is a gift. It's not drudgery. It's not just a means to an end and not just a place to make money. We want you to start thinking about work as an athlete. The 100,000 hour rule. You have 100,000 hours of work. Do what you can to make them count. All right, we have a few more things to let you know about before you go. First, 
podcast reviews really help us serve more people. So if this podcast is helpful for you, we'd love your help to get it into as many leaders' hands as possible. Please leave us a review, even if it's not five stars. And if you really wanna go the extra mile, let us know what you'd like to hear about more of or what you think we could do better to serve you and the people that you care about. Speaking of resources, we have a lot online and they're all free. We have free assessments, educational videos, articles from sources like Fast Company, written by our coaches and clients, all designed to help you use our tools in your everyday life and leadership. To dive into the free treasure trove of goodies we have for you, go to novus.global and then click on resources. Some of you have been listening for a while and you haven't yet taken that next step to hire a coach. This is your time. I can't tell you how often I've heard from clients of ours around the world that they wish they would have talked to us sooner. So if you have a sense that you're capable of more, we would be thrilled to explore what coaching could do for you and those you influence. Simply email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. You might also be listening to this thinking you want to be a coach, or maybe you already are a coach and you have a vision to build a six or seven figure coaching practice, coaching people you love in a way that brings life to you and your clients. Well, that's why we created the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. And it is an in-depth coaching apprenticeship designed to help you create the coaching practice of your dreams. The first step in exploring that is simple. Just go to www.mp.institute. That's MP as in Meta Performance dot Institute. And we have free assessments to help you see what kind of training you need to create your coaching practice the way our coaches do at Novus Global. And finally, and for some of you, this will be the most important part. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer, Stephen Selnick as producer, and editors and audio engineers, Drew MacPowell and Jeremy Davidson. We love working with this team. To find out more about how to create a podcast for you and your business, check them out at rainbowcreative.co. Thank you so much for listening. We love making these for you. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.